Welcome to the 11th episode of the Next Gen Cast, which is brought to you from Next Generation GP, a leadership programme for trainees and newly qualified GPs across the country. My name's Nish Manik. I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and I helped set up Next Gen just over three years ago now. December is somehow upon us already, so this is a Christmas special with an extra special guest. Sarah Jane Marsh has been Chief Exec of Birmingham Children's Hospital since 2008, and she was actually the youngest NHS Chief Exec at the age of just 32. In 2015, she also took on the additional role of Chief Exec of Birmingham Women's Hospital, and went on to integrate the two trusts to create the first Women's and Children's Foundation Trust in Europe in little more than 18 months. She was also asked to head up NHS England's Maternity Transformation Programme in 2016, which aims to make maternity care across England safer and more personalised for women. If that wasn't enough, in May this year, she was asked to lead the testing aspect of the Government's Test and Trace Programme for Coronavirus. I was very lucky to catch up with Sarah Jane in a brief moment of respite after finishing that role and being on the verge of returning to her role as Chief Exec of Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. I'm so glad that we got to record this because I've had the privilege of hearing Sarah Jane speak a few times now at our Next Gen GP event in the Midlands and every time I hear her speak I come away with the sense that she is absolutely clear and unashamedly candid about her values. She's just very much her true self in the roles that she does and she's also open about what it's like to balance all those leadership responsibilities alongside bringing up two young children. So enough from me, here's my Christmas fireside chat with Sarah Jane Marsh. So Sarah Jane Marsh, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so great that we can share some of the wisdom I've heard you share at our Next Gen events in the Midlands with more people. Thank you, especially during such a busy time. You're welcome, Nish. I can never say no to you. I always feel quite daunted doing these, obviously because the people we speak to, the bios are are daunting, but also because I know how busy everyone is and I feel very aware of how much time I'm taking. That word busy sort of takes on a new meaning with you because as people will know, you've just returned from leading the testing aspect of the government's test and trace programme. So I wondered if we could just start there and dive right in. Um, how are you and how have you? How did you find it? Yes, uh, I'm, I am just uh, back, Nish, and it was an incredible experience on so many levels. Um, as you know, I've been chief exec in an NHS hospital for 11 years, and I'd been a little bit involved when COVID first started with NHS staff testing, and NHS England had asked me to help. But when I got the call from Dido to say, testing trace has been set up, and can you use that expertise um, for testing in test and trace, I was kind of like, this is huge Um, and from start to finish it was really it was incredibly rewarding in many ways Um, the the scale of the challenge was huge but I think to go from a place of not really having testing infrastructure in February March time to being able to do 500,000 tests a day and beyond uh, with the new technologies uh, I'm exceptionally proud of but it did come at a quite significant personal cost can imagine the hours that were involved in that sort of day in day out and the pressure to deliver I mean literally lives 
at stake. So uh, I feel very proud, but I also do feel, I guess, a sense of relief uh, to, to have walked away and to be able to hand over the responsibility for the next uh, phase of testing to someone else. I can't even begin to imagine what that's been like. Um, for what it's worth, thank you for everything that you've been doing. You mentioned personal cost there. And the, one of the things that went through my mind, sort of watching from afar, I thought, inevitably, you come under scrutiny, you come under criticism in a role like that. But it, it struck me that lots of the things that people may have been criticising probably weren't within your control. And that's probably true of lots of leadership positions, but maybe particularly that one. And I wondered if you could just reflect on if that was true. And if so, how did that feel? How did you cope? I think one of the things I found really difficult is I have always been a very open and transparent communicator and I've always used social media to truthfully express the way that I feel things are going for the positive and also, you know, when things are going, are going wrong. And I've got autonomy to do that as a chief executive in the NHS within reason, as long as you don't breach, you know, confidentiality, etc. But working for the government it's impossible to do or say anything without it being seen as coming directly from the government itself. And I think one of the things that I found the most difficult was that communications aspect, like not really having any direct control over the things that were being said about the services. And therefore, there was perhaps a misalignment between what people were expecting and what was possible in terms of delivery because the comms wasn't always um, as clear as it could be, I guess, about actually what was available and what the issues were. And I think that's one of the things that, yeah, I did find the most difficult to deal with. Uh, being accountable, fine, I've I, I got that. But I like to have that very transparent narrative out there. And there were times when I would have just wanted to have owned that more myself. But I recognise in a role in government, you, you, you can't do that. And it must have it must have just been exhausting because you were you were travelling to London as well. What was it like at home having to manage this alongside? You've got two little kids as well. Really hard. Um, it, it was like completely constant, and the ch- my children noticed a, a lot of changes. And I think that's quite hard when they're saying, "Mummy, you've not listening properly," or you know, you've not sat with us for dinner or you've not been able to pick us up from something. Um, I think it became especially hard because I initially agreed to do a three-month secondment, but I really felt that I'd not done everything that I wanted to do. But my eldest, who's seven coming eight, knew I'd committed to three months and every day between the three months and when I eventually left, she would say, you said you were going to leave, you said you were going to leave. What is this test and trace thing anyway? Um, yeah, I, I remember coming back because I did manage to, 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 to have a break in the summer and I was in playing some games uh, with my little boy and we were playing superheroes and he said, I'll be Dido. I'll be Dido. And he just said, yes, you know, because he just heard her name all the time and she was always in contact. So she became like a, you know, he thought she was a superhero. So uh, it, it, it did impact My husband was brilliant in terms of sort of being able to help um, out more uh, with the balance. Because obviously there was the lockdown thing and everything that was happening at the same time. But I did find it difficult. And it was one of the reasons, I mean, I always wanted to go back to BWC. It's one I love. And I think probably six months in a role like that, it's really good to get a fresh pair of eyes to come in anyway. And the challenge is different now to what it was then. 
but I'd also got them in my mind a lot as you can't get that that time back um, my little boy was just starting school you know things like that so it did weigh on my mind in terms of you need to draw a line at some point you can only work like that for so long I think and you're clearly very values driven as well as a leader and the other thing that I wondered was did that help or hinder you when you were sort of planted in this political cauldron that you were no I think it helped because I didn't do anything or find myself in a position of being responsible for anything where I couldn't reconcile it back to my values there were things that went on around me that you know I found difficult at times but I always managed to centre myself back to actually is the thing that's been done is the thing that's been achieved the right thing and I think that's one of the issues with with testing and the public narrative you know one of the things that I'm most proud of is the work that we did to try and um, improve the access to people who weren't getting access even when it looked like it was going well you know the people who, who didn't have a car who couldn't therefore couldn't drive to a test site or didn't want to give their details to the government because they believed there would be repercussions for their wider life. So getting access anonymous uh, to anonymous testing, for example, uh, reaching out to groups, doing door-to-door testing, those kind of things. I think that sort of thing was less visible because people were more sort of counting in volumes and websites and distances and all of those things. But I knew that the service that we were developing and delivering was by and large a good a good service and of course we had things that we wanted to improve but ultimately I'm proud of what what I was doing and was able to achieve. And you're now in this interim period where you're you're about to go back to work it's I bet it's nice to sort of sit sit there and reflect a bit on what's happened because it's probably just hit you like a, a whirlwind. It was so hard at first actually I think it probably like coming down from a high of some description I mean my phone was like ringing 24-7 texting whatsapps emails and it's kind of like for the first few weeks I found it a bit difficult like oh nobody wants me you know <laughs> it's like oh what am I gonna do um particularly then going into a second lockdown as well mm. you know I've, I've cleaned every inch of my house got you know got rid of everything <laughs> in it really there's nothing left um bought and wrapped my Christmas present to, to try and fill the time but actually I'm glad I did take a few weeks because it's taken a bit of time to come down and I now do feel a bit more on an even keel I am a little bit aware, though, going back into the trust of impact because of the pace is different. I'm not saying that the NHS is slow by any stretch of the imagination, but working in an organisation and leading an organisation is a different thing. So um, I feel I'm going to need to like semi-anesthetise myself. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that um, going back, do you think it's the experience that you've had, will it change the way that you lead or the way you make decisions? There are some things that I'll take from it for the positive, definitely. Um, I think the big thing that, or my first impression, it was less actually to do with working in government. It was more because lots of the people that were in the first leadership team of Test and Trace came from private sector organisations, actually less so the management consultants that we've heard a lot about in the media, uh, more people coming from banking and retail. And they were all exceptionally data-driven and really interested in citizen behaviour, particularly our citizens interface with uh, web portals, etc. And then it just made me reflect, actually, 
it's not something that I've been as focused on or I think the NHS is as focused on as it might be. I'm not saying we don't use data, but it's like on my list of things that I'm looking for to make decisions, data is probably a little bit lower down the list than for many of the people that I work with. And it did make me think, are we looking at some of our data in the right way? Um, so I think that's definitely uh, one of the things that I will take back from, from it. There's another thing as well about sort of that clarity about what's trying to be achieved week by week. Are we really clear as the week starts? What, what success might look like at the end of it? How, how can we answer the question, did we have a good week or not? I think often in the NHS we go to those indicators that are the indicators that the government wants us to look at. You know, what, what was our A&E performance or our 18 weeks? Or so? Are we actually looking at the data that tells us whether we had a good you know, week for the people who are using our services, if our staff had a good week? So I think there's quite a lot of things that I will be mulling over for sure. Yeah, and I think there's some personal things as well, you know, to do with resilience and, and sort of where you can get those reserves from when you really are at rock bottom, which I'm sure will help me in other, in other ways as well. Did you discover anything about yourself in terms of resilience? Yeah, I did. I mean, I would have said that I was very resilient going into it, and I think I demonstrated to myself that I am, but I also found a place where I lost it which has never happened to me before which um, means you've got to you, you've got to recognize that that's happening and try to do something about it so I've got several examples in my mind of where I literally thought I couldn't go on I've got nothing left I've got no nothing new to offer and the pressure kept coming the answers needed to be found and I always managed to find something somewhere normally by the people you know, I've, I've said to you and other things, if, if you've got the right people around you, you can always think however dark the moment is, I'm just going to ask it X or Y to help me. And actually, Gila Sachs, who was my director of strategy and policy, her father's just sadly died, who was the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. And I've just listened to the eulogy that she gave at his funeral, where she talks about every problem having a solution and how that she really believes any problem can be solved. And whenever I was in a place where I would be like, oh, what do we do now? She would always say, let's just break it down. Let's break it down. We could, you know, so I think having the people that you can go to um, and work with is helpful. But there were a few moments where I thought I'm not, um, my cups just literally exploded. Partly like losing perspective or just having so much crammed into your head that you just feel like you can't make decisions or that you're operating on autopilot. I had a little car, it wasn't serious, but I, it was with an object, not another car. But I did it and just carried on driving. And I thought, well, that's not normal. Because it didn't, it didn't impact me at all. I just went, oh, I've crashed the car and code. And I thought, no, something's not right here. It also made me recognise that however resilient you are, there are, there are limits to it and that needs to be recognised and you just need to stop for a small amount of time and just gather your thoughts. But several times, I mean, my, my husband's great because quite a few dark moments I'd go, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he would turn to me very calm and go, you should have thought of that first because you're in too deep. <laughs> Oh, that's helpful. <laughs> it's a bit like, it reminds me of being in labour. Oh no, I can hear you. It's like, you want to just make it stop. And it's like, no, all you can do is go forwards. All you can do is go forwards. So they were definitely like, yeah. But, but I think talking about it helped. I mean, I, I was lucky. Well, again, you make your own luck. But you know what I mean? In terms of having people around 
where you could have some of those um, honest conversations. Um, Emma Stanton, who was uh, my director of um, laboratories and supplies of innovation, he was great. He's actually a, a psychiatrist by background. So we, we had little, you know, things offline. Sometimes we just look at each other and have a little cry. So that's our one-to-one then. But, you know, we feel better. <laughs> so I do think it's, yeah, you've got to be honest. You can't pretend that things are okay all the time in an environment like that because, you, you know, there are going to be times when you're finding it difficult. So, so yeah, I think I have learned. I, I am very resilient, but I've got limits. I really appreciate you being so honest about that. Because it just shows that you're human and people doing these jobs are human. And we forget that when we're looking from the outside in. You know, I remember one of the tweets I said about I'm, I'm doing my best seven days a week, uh, 18 hours a day. I got loads of replies saying, what are you doing the other six? <laughs> <laughs> so there's all, you know, I, I, and I completely yeah. understand that people want that, you know, want that level of, of, of service and absolutely deserve it. But there are human faces behind all of these. And, I, I, you know, I see that with other people that are given a really really hard time in the media and you know how hard everybody's working and trying their best to do things uh, and many people have been asked to do it they didn't necessarily you know volunteer themselves for it and you just think there does need to be a bit more kind of kindness in the world as well because that doesn't actually help because then that pressure that's coming on people from that spotlight actually makes it more difficult for them to do the things that they need to do not easier so that I do find that a bit annoying like if you want to really help we should be trying to lift up some of the figures that are doing this work not knock people down all the time that's absolutely true we'd be wasting an opportunity if we spent the whole time talking about testing as fascinating as it is but I know that you have some gems on your leadership journey which I really want to get out there so can we can we park testing for a moment and We'll talk about, so you're going back to your, your role as Chief Exec of Birmingham Women's and Children's very soon. You've been there, I think I'm right in saying, since 2009. And when you were appointed, you were the NHS's youngest Chief Executive because you were 32. But I also know that you had your first job out of uni. You were, am I right in saying, you were fielding complaints in telesales. <laughs> um, so I really want to know, how did you go from that to being Chief Executive? Put in the blank for me. <laughs> Yeah, so I did my degree and I did a master's degree and I did various temp roles, which I think is one of the things that you're referring to. I worked at a place called Telewest Communications when they were trying to set up uh, digital services. And I think my main job was to ring people and tell them to turn it off, count to 10 and turn it back on again. So I could probably work in any IT department (laughs) in the land. But I I entered the NHS by the Graduate Management Training Scheme uh, in 2000. And that really, a little bit like doctor's training, although less fulsome, for a couple of years you get an opportunity to work um, in hospitals, in primary care, in uh, commissioning organisations, mental health trusts etc. So um, I did my management training uh, for a couple of years and I then went off to work at Warsaw Hospitals and made my way up to Director of Planning and Performance but I felt that I needed to go off and own my own thing a bit more. I've not had a big operations role and there's a bit of a thing in NHS but certainly was in in that first decade for me about you've not really got it unless you've done an operational role so I I applied for the chief operating officer of Birmingham Children's Hospital uh, and got that job in 2007 and I intended to do that for sort of four or five years uh, and I was really happy there but then there were a few issues that went off there was a poor healthcare commission report which was the CQC before it was renamed and an improvement plan needed to be put in place. 
and the chief exec um, moved out quite quickly and a few other uh, executive directors left and the chairman asked me if I would just act up for a period of time and then the trust went out to advert and interview and I didn't apply for it but then a lot of people were saying to me you know we've tried the other sort of chief exec we'd like a different sort of chief exec and the chairman was quite encouraging so at the last minute I put in an application and I became the substantive chief exec in June 2009 but it was very scary and I don't think I really believed I was it probably until I went on my first maternity leave in 2012 and came back and then I thought well actually I might you know be the chief exec here so it took me quite a lot of time a long time to get over what you've just said really being that young chief exec who'd come in a very accelerated route what do you think helped along the way what do you think has has really helped you to be so successful um i I, i've not overthought it in any way and i i i always give this advice to people you can have a kind and i'm not saying that career planning and paths aren't important but I think in all of the different roles I had my main focus was on the things that I was trying to do the things I was trying to improve so in most of those early years it was working with the clinical teams to say okay how do we take your service from where it is to where we want it to be how can I help you Uh, using the management skills to sit alongside the clinical skills and expertise and just being focused on the delivery, the things to be proud of, the making a difference and, and being a little less sort of thoughtful I, I, than, than some people might be about what it meant in terms of career and leadership. And then things kept happening to me. And I, I know part of that for sure is that, that I was delivering. But I, I think also I was in situations where I've got people who believed in me and were willing to um, take a chance or a risk. So when I was at Walsall, Sue James, who was the chief exec, knew a lot about the uh, management training scheme and really supported and gave me a chance and made me a director when I was 28, I think. So, you know, she took a big chance on me. And then Joe Davies, who was my first chair at the Children's Hospital, you know, the same. It was she saw something and thought, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take the risk and hopefully it'll pay off. I think there's a bit of being, you know, you've got to be good at what you do, but you've got to have people that are willing to back and support, particularly if you don't look, sound, act like this, the, the stereotypical leader that perhaps people might be thinking is coming into a role. The common theme that's come out in the podcast episodes we've done is people have said other people's belief in them has been a massive motivator. So you mentioned there about not not maybe looking the part. Now, this has come up again and again as well, is this theme of imposter syndrome. And I won't ask you if you've had it, because something else I've noticed is everyone always says they do. And I probably should start worrying when someone says they don't. So let's assume that you get it at times, you've had it in the past. Talk to me about that. So when when does that strike and how do you deal with it? it, it uh, yes. I mean, the main place or the main times that it certainly uh, was striking when I first started in the role was when I was externally, uh, not not in the organisation itself, because I felt in the organisation people knew the process by which I'd been appointed. They knew some of the things that I'd done when I was chief operating officer, for example, and had kind of been part of choosing me to be the chief exec. But when I was out and about in the broader system and, um, you know, you've got people who I've got a lot more experience than you and look and sound like they know what they're doing. I would really feel quite anxious 
and feel like I wasn't supposed to be there and I wasn't a part of a part of that so I think that's my first experience and then thinking about well what can you do what can you do about it are there more things that you can do to prepare I'm a big believer that if you don't speak at something quickly you won't you know if you're in a three-hour meeting and you haven't said something half an hour you probably won't so how can you kind of prepare things that you might want to say or I did a bit of um coaching work about first impressions as well uh, with the lady who was absolutely fantastic who got me to see that sometimes you do have to act slightly out of what's you in your own comfort zone just to get so people calm down in your presence so that they start listening to you again so she was like saying you know don't be too wild with hand gestures and th- you know just 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 be kind of a bit more centered and small things that can make a difference but then it comes and goes in different guises taking on the role at the women's hospital and going in there big pregnant lady <laughs> then thinking you know oh my god they're going to be thinking why have I got this woman with a big baby <laughs> when we wanted to cheap exec thinking is this right I you know I don't know then obviously going into the into testing and um test and trace and you know what must people think and uh, it, it, it definitely never leaves you I think there are always times and periods I'll tell you one of the things that I've found helpful lately is reading Jess Phillips's first book where she talks about you assume that all the people in power or in these senior leadership positions have got all these things that you haven't got when you actually get to meet people you realize they're really not all that and we're all the same so I always try to hold on to that as well like yeah we are all the same really and everybody's got those got you know got different issues that going on for them you never know what's going on for other people Mm, and that's exactly what next gen is trying to show that you know you struggle with some of the same things that we do just in different spheres and I think it's a strength as well in lots of ways because the people that worry me most are those that come over like they've got it all tapped and they do know all the answers and they're not necessarily you know going to other people for for help and support and I, I think it's a strength really these jobs are enormous I mean all the jobs I've added uh, over the past few years are huge and if I thought I was good enough to do them it would probably be time to go home because they are overwhelming and there are things happening every day that you know you don't know what to do about them there aren't answers and you know that while you're thinking about processing the improvement or what can we do you can't stop now you know if you're worried about a service you're responsible for people are still getting care in that service today while you're working out your improvement that's quite overwhelming or can Mm. be overwhelming so i want to change tack a little bit sarah jane if you don't mind and talk about some of the positives of your role you've been there for 11 years now what are you proudest of in that time because there must be loads of things I'll never forget once you said that the E in CEO should stand for engagement. And your style is so consistent with that. I'd love to know about some of the things you've managed to achieve through adopting that style. It's the people, really. You know, there's lots of specific examples, but it's when you see people flourish, be that leaders, clinical leaders, um, new people that you've recruited into the organisation, you set up services, whatever it is, I always just think, oh, wow. I think if you believe and invest in people, anything is possible. So leadership is always the thing that makes me the proudest and always the thing I worry about the most as well, because if it's not there, then everything else can become overwhelming. And, and so when you get things like a great staff survey, you know, people recommending us a place to work or to be cared for, or just talking with pride, um, you know, when you've got peer reviews or inspections or whatever, and you hear that said back, I think they're the things that make me 
the most proud. I think the one that always sticks in my mind, and it's really small, uh, but so just captures really what, what makes my job the best in the world, was when we had the CQC inspection um, of just the children's hospital in 2015, 2016, I think it was. One of the examples that they gave was about a porter that they'd observed who spent 40 minutes trying to find a child stuffed animal because they were crying hysterically they'd got to be admitted into hospital. They really wanted this animal and he was pretty sure it had been wrapped in some dirty sheets and sent into the sluice room and down into the laundry. And he was unpacking everything and some of the nurses were kind of saying to him, what are you doing? We need to get moving. And he was like, no, I've got to find this animal. And I think one of the inspectors said to him, why are you doing that? And he said, oh, because it's the children's hospital. We're here for the children. And I, I literally, when the inspector said it back, I just burst into tears and just thought, actually, that is what makes me proud, that we've got people who would take 40 minutes out of their work to find a stuffed animal. And I can't, that's not a groundbreaking service. It's not save somebody's life. It's not, you know, save millions of pounds or change the world. But it encapsulates what actually is at the heart of the NHS, I think. Absolutely. I bet it's very easy to get overwhelmed with the processes and the targets and the figures. But actually, that's so true. It is all about the people. It's so important as leaders to remember that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking my chairman, Bruce Keogh, he's, uh, you know, an inspirational figure who adds a lot of value to that as well. But one of the things he always says is that the NHS is very simplest. It's about people caring for people. It's about some people needing help and other people being able to use their expertise to, to provide that help. And, and really everything else is just um, a structure and a process around human connections. I'm sure there's not many people who've got chairman who say things like that, but I really believe that's true. And when you watch, you know, that's, and that's exactly the same at the Women's Hospital. It's that magic behind every door. There's that human connection, human connection, somebody helping somebody else. And I think that's why working in the NHS, regardless of all the other stuff, is just one of the greatest jobs and you, you must feel that from the contact you have with your patients it's that that makes it makes it all worthwhile and when you look forward over the next decade or so if we're going to have this conversation again we'll record another podcast episode in 10 years time what would you I like, like a hologram then well maybe the technology <laughs> will exist to interview holograms um but what would you like to say that you have achieved during that time um, it, particularly in relation to the Women's and Children's Hospital, uh, we really, really need to do something about our buildings. I'm not somebody that's completely motivated by building a big one. You know, it's not it's not a sign of success. Oh, look at all these bricks over here. But there comes a point when infrastructure stops you from being able to deliver the care you need to deliver. And I feel that's the one thing that I haven't cracked and I need to put some focus on over the next year or so. So that's definitely one. But I... I'm not saying I don't have aspirations for the organisation and myself, you know, sort of thinking into the future, but I'm not, by and large, I'm a person who lives in the moment. I like to think about sort of where we are, where we go, but I don't, I don't have huge kind of let's look out into the next 10 years horizons and think that's what success will look like or that's not. I think it's very much that kind of iterative evolution of what's the right thing to do. So yeah, I don't know. I'm sure I'll be doing something really weird. <laughs> Is there anything in yourself as a leader that you would like to improve? That may be a tricky question, but something that seems to come up as even leaders of the highest calibre have the humility to think about their own growth. Is there anything that you look at internally and, and, and are working on? Yeah, 
Uh, one of them is absolute clarity about uh, what's required to be achieved. I like, I mean, I'm a big objective setter and, you know, work off one-to-ones and relationships and things like that. But I think sometimes I just assume that people will know what I'm wanting. Uh, I think a lot of senior people can get into that place and, and then nobody's exactly sure what good looks like and things can drift out. Um, so that's something that I'm always working to try to improve. And you just have to pull yourself back because, you know, whatever your strengths are you're always going to end up with things that you need to improve and that that's the big one um that hangs over me and, and actually it's quite interesting being in test and trades because I wasn't the boss so it, I was subject to leadership and, and then seeing the impact of some of the leadership styles some of which I know are quite similar to mine you can did you see what I mean like at some time at some occasions I was like oh my god it's like being managed by me <laughs> sometimes it's good and sometimes it's difficult <laughs> so I'm definitely going to take some of those things and work on them but yeah I've always got things on up my sleeve that I want to improve and do better and stretch myself out. I think you you have to and just keep refreshing and challenging yourself mm, you're right actually and it's amazing how much you can learn about yourself as a leader when you are on the receiving end of a certain style of leadership, definitely. Yeah. So Sarah-Jane, before this conversation ends, there's one thing that we have to talk about, and that is balance, because you have so much wisdom on the subject that's helped me tremendously over the years, because you yeah. do this so beautifully openly in a way that most people don't. And maybe you don't realise the effect it has on people like me who've just had their first child and thinking can I ever do anything else alongside that and pick her up from nursery? So for example, this conversation, your EEA said to me, Sarah J needs to get off at this time because she's picking up her little one. And I just love that. So let's chat a bit about balance. You've got two kids, are they five and eight now? Is that five and seven? Uh, They're five and seven, but Rose is nearly eight, yeah. And when I came to shadow you, I remember they were were two and four or something. So they were so little. Can you talk to me about how how do you manage it? What does balance look like for you? I think it's um, about being very organised, and that's actually that can bring a lot of strength and clarity back to what I was saying before about sort of so people know what they can get from you and what they cannot get from you. So there are times when I need to leave on time, which for a chief exec like odd to say I need to leave at five o'clock. Um, there's a day a week where I do school pick up, and then there are other nights where it's like a free for all. I'll go till you know, nine, ten o'clock at night. But those rules are quite clear. And if somebody asks for a something at a time that I can't do, then it becomes a no because that's the that's the time that Sarah Jane leaves on time or picks the children up or whatever it is. It's then being transparent about that as you've just said. Because I think and and I was definitely fell foul of this in my after having my first child. I didn't do the kind of, I need to leave now because I need to pick my child up. I'd come up with some kind of, oh, I need to leave because the traffic might be busy. Whereas <laughs> I just actually, when it came to like, uh, after having Ronnie, my second, I was just like, right, I'm just going to be honest about this. I am working, you know, I'm sure 37, out, 37 hours times two anyway. I'm going to do the work. It might be that I'm stopping between five and seven. It's going to be back at, at eight. And quite frankly, the world's moved on and we just need to be open and transparent about it. I've got one I can add now to because it's a new one where I had a meeting with the Secretary of State at the same time as I needed to pick up Ronnie from his induction at school and he was absolutely adamant that nobody else would do like daddy wouldn't do so I drove to the school I did the call until I needed to go and then I said I'm really sorry Secretary of State I've just got to go 
and pick my little boy up and I'll come back and get back in the and he said of course of course she must of course he's very very nice about it of course she must obviously he's got young children as well so I picked him up did that went and dropped him off at his grandma's and then went back on the call and he was like why haven't we seen him Sarah J why haven't you brought him onto the <laughs> so it does take and you know it, it, it is really hard but I think if people don't talk about it and aren't honest about it then it just makes it more difficult for everybody and I have to say he was so supportive and lovely about it that it encouraged me to think actually yeah that you know you would do that again mm. I love and I love the way that you're so firm about those boundaries because you have to be do you ever get any pushback about it or does it ever get in the way I don't think it has um because I've established myself anyway I have asked myself the question quite a few times would it have you know say I'd have carried on in that chief operating officer job and then I would have you know gone on off and had a baby and come back and then I'd have said oh yeah I'm applying for this job but really I'll need to leave here and I'll need to do that I don't know I think I I, I can see how it absolutely how other people could experience those challenges but I have to say I've really had nothing but support from people uh, the guilt is that which I overlay onto myself for it because you know it, it does and, and I have made more compromises many many more compromises while I've been in test and trace than I would do at other times because I'm not the boss and if somebody says I want to do something at x time then um you know sometimes you just can't get can't get around it but but yeah I think that's one of the moments that will stick in my mind that kind of I'm ever mm. so sorry but I need to pick up my child from school but they can only have one first day in the whole life right Mm. you know you can't get this time back and these moments are so important and you know he probably doesn't he probably won't remember that but you will if you weren't there as well you would have really remembered that do you get I mean again it's probably like the imposter syndrome you probably do get it but mum guilt I do get it quite a bit I mean I'm lucky that because of the way we've done things from the start it's not like either of my children expect me to do everything anyway in fact they expect their daddy to do more and are quite surprised when I am doing it anyway and I think my daughter's quite a good case study in the the sort of nature or nurture as in that because she's seen broadly while she's been growing up I've been out of the house chief exec role um a daddy working more part-time and doing more childcare. that's her mental model I can't remember whether I've told you the story before but there was this an occasion when she really didn't want me to go to work and she was saying my deputy's called David Melbourne and she was saying mommy I really need you to do this why don't you ring David Melbourne's wife and ask her if she can be chief exec for the day and I said why on earth would I phone David <laughs> Melbourne's wife and she said well David Melbourne's a boy he can't do it and that's not come from anything I've said and it just <laughs> makes me think like oh hold on yeah so um, I, I'm lucky in that respect that I'm not, they, they just expect less of me in a way. So they're just, they're, they're happy when um, I'm around and I do things with them. But I do, yeah, particularly when there are things like in the day that are, you know, I always make sure I do the parents' evenings and the nativities and things like that. But they'll say like, oh, who can volunteer to come in and do extra, you know, reading or come on a coach trip? I mean, obviously not at the moment, but they just think, oh, I've got that bit of mum guilt. But it's never um, ending, isn't it? It's, like, it's never ending. But I think if, if they turn out, you know, okay, which I'm sure they will, then, you know, it, it, it's fine. It, it's We all work as a team to look after them. So it's Thank just you. wait for their WhatsApp groups. Oh, my God, like the, the year WhatsApp groups, <laughs> when they get started, that's when it all get your oh, on the WhatsApp groups. Okay. It all gets a bit like... 
I'm about to hand make hand make an astronaut costume in the next three minutes. Has anybody else got one? And I'm like on Amazon, order, order, order. <laughs> That's a really good tip. Thank you. And you're very open about them on on social media, and you're very I mean you're just very open generally on on Twitter. Has that come at a personal cost? I mean, presumably that's a you know you're deliberate about that. Yeah, I mean, by and large, I find it a really useful communication tool. It's a way of of, of hearing other people's opinions and getting into different sorts of conversations. I think it's really hierarchy flattening as well. Like everybody's equal on Twitter. It doesn't really matter what people's roles are etc i think the things that um i find the most impactful are individual families usually parents that get in touch about a specific thing and you can just tell how angry they are and how let down they feel and how desperate they are particularly in mental health services because well you know there's, there's been some service issues that needed to be resolved needed to do better but also there's sometimes there isn't a way to solve the problem anyway and you can just feel the desperation so that they do impact and obviously they come in 24 7 so day and mm. night my feed at the moment is i've got many many messages every day saying resign from this do that i mean i must at least oh god down any a day saying it's not nhs test and trace it's circo test and trace what's this that blah, blah. so I've, I've just I've, I've become a bit immune to that i just roll on and think well you know people just need to have the opinions they've got I'm not going to emotionally attach myself to it because nothing I can do about it anyway one of my colleagues at the children's hospital gave me a very good piece of advice which is twitter is it's not a text message it's a conversation that people would like to include you in but you don't have to you can take your own choice about whether you involve yourself or not so when something's difficult and you know there isn't nothing to be gained from it I just roll on and That's I've got some advice. nice colleagues who send me little messages saying, don't feed the trolls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're giving people oxygen to keep criticising you, which if you just ignored them, they wouldn't have. But, I, but again, back to the page, I, I find that difficult. If, it, if I know the care of a child or a woman or a baby or a young person or something's been affected, I feel I have to dive in and get involved somehow. It's a really delicate balance. So Sarah Jane, the final three questions and we'll keep them short because I'm so conscious of your time and you have to get to the school run on time. But the first is, can you recommend a book or a leadership resource for our listeners, please? I don't actually. I, 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 the big thing I learned in leadership that I really learned from is watching people and the things that people do that work or don't work and just making my own little notes or tips as long as I as I go and I find that is the most important resource to keep refreshing myself so I'm not there's nothing I've read recently where I've thought right that's it it's more been about watching people and situations your chairman said exactly the same so you're both on the same page (laughs) and the second one is can you tell me about a leader that you admire and why there are lots of people that I admire right there are chief execs that I've watched that are perhaps in the, the next generation to me, but I've looked at, you know, what are some of the traits that make them successful. But I think the person that's influenced me the most, and I know I've answered this before, uh, is my dad. Uh, he's the lead, I mean, he's, he's the chair of a group of schools, actually. But he's given, he's got this inner confidence about the way he does things, that he holds himself to account for his own standards and not the standards that people might set for him. And I think I've inherited that trait. But if I know I've done what, I feel is right and what I'm capable of or the best that I can do. I'm kind of 
happy with that. So I think that's the person who's I sort of look up to in terms of leadership more than yeah, somebody who's in like a formal leadership role. Sarah Jane, the final question is what would be your top bits of advice for new leaders listening to this? Enjoy every minute of everything that you do. And if you're not enjoying it, ask yourself the question whether it's right for you. Because working, particularly people listening who work in the NHS, it's the most amazing place. And I come across people all the time that are in like despair or finding things really difficult. And I keep, I always want to show them the light that there's a different, there's a different way. There's a way of enjoying and having fun and still being really productive and meaningful. So I'd say that, like enjoy every minute. And then my main thing, when I left Test and Trace, Dido asked me to do like a little leaving speech. And I've got all these really, you know, impressive, well, I'm not sure they were impressive or not. I thought they were, you know, lessons that we could learn, <laughs> lessons that we could learn. But uh, because it's me, I always just burst into tears on all occasions like that. So all I could see, all I could scrabble to in my mind was the most important thing for any leader is to be kind. If, if, if we can be kind, people will more likely to be kind back to us and then everything just seems to work better. Yeah, I just really believe in kindness. I think it's really underrated as a leadership quality and a thing to be giving out to other people and to be receiving back. Well, I don't know what else you were planning to say at your leaving thing, Sarah Jane, but a great message for life, not just for leadership. And a fantastic message to end on as I let you go to pick up your children. I'm so glad we recorded that because for someone of your seniority, it's really rare to hear such honesty about things like what you do when your cup is not just empty, but it's exploded and you're trying to balance bringing up two small children alongside so much pressure in the roles that you're in. And at the end of the day, healthcare, like leadership, is about one person looking after another person. So thank you so much, Sarah Jane. It's a pleasure and thank you for all that you're doing, Nish, to get these messages out there and get into people's lives at difficult and troubling times. So well done to you and I'm sure I'll see you very soon. So that was episode 11 with the wonderful Sarah Jane Marsh. If you enjoyed it, I'd be really grateful if you could subscribe to the podcast because apparently that's how more people get to hear about it and maybe think about sharing it with someone who it might inspire. And if you're listening and you're a GP trainee or a newly qualified GP and you're interested in joining one of our free leadership programs, sign up to our monthly bulletin at bit.ly forward slash NGGP bulletin because we have loads of programs starting across the country virtually over the coming months. Before I go, I just want to say that 2020 has, of course, been a year of firsts for many of us in the spheres that we're in and for Next Gen too. I mean, we've had our first national webinars, um, we've started our very first podcast, we've launched our first virtual programmes. Whether you've been someone that has subscribed to the podcast, or you've tuned into a webinar, you've decided to apply to one of our virtual programmes, or maybe you've been a guest speaker at one of our events, or maybe you're an amazing member of our team that's just stepped up and helped us to continue to energise, engage and empower the next generation of GP leaders. I just want to say thank you so much. Wishing your family safe and well over the Christmas period and the Next Gen cast will be back with you in 2021.